Karen Abbott's works include Sin and the Second City, American Rose, and Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, which made the New York Times bestseller list and routinely are cited on annual best book lists. The Wall Street Journal named her one of the masters of the art of narrative nonfiction, and her writings have appeared in The New Yorker, Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, Salon, and other publications. Tonight, she is here to discuss her newest stirring work, The Ghost of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The, woman, the Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. NPR calls it a page turner, and many librarians will appreciate this note by the Washington Post. Abbott's research is exemplary, and she lays out the details with a novelist's deft touch. Please join me in welcoming Karen Abbott. Thank you so much, Carol, for that introduction. Uh, thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, I am thrilled to be back in Boston. I love this beautiful city and especially this beautiful venue. Every time I come here, I just think about moving in here and nobody would even notice. <laughs> um, so just to get us into the mood tonight a little bit, I am going to read a snippet of a newspaper article that I found in the Boston Post in May of 1922 um, about female bootlegger. Bootlegging may not be considered exactly a ladylike profession, but during the past two years, more than 100 female moonshiners and hooch peddlers have been apprehended in Boston. The female bootlegger is usually a married woman whose husband has taught her the secrets of the trade. She is immune from punishment in the courts, as, is pra as in practically every case, her husband takes the fall, pays a light fine, and goes back to work. Then they also present a problem to the prohibition agent. Dry sleuths describe them as being particularly ferocious and dangerous in combat, using the time-honored weapons of her sex, teeth, nails, and feet. Two years ago, agents arrested the first woman bootlegger in Boston after she attacked them with an ax, a flat iron, and the bludgeon with which they claimed she was inclined to discipline her timid husband. So, <laughs> I would not want to run into that lady in the street. Um, so anyway, I'm here tonight to talk about uh, the Ghost of Eden Park. Um, I, and I usually start by talking about how I get my ideas. And I usually get my ideas from musty archives or old libraries or out-of-print books. But I got the idea for this book from a television show. Uh, if anybody here watched the HBO series Boardwalk Empire? Yeah. So, um, you know, it was a brilliant show, I thought. It ran on HBO for five seasons. I think it perfectly captured the dawn of the 1920s. You know, bootleggers were just starting to figure out how to circumvent prohibition laws, and nobody had yet heard of Al Capone. Um, and there was a minor character named George Remus. Here he is pictured, uh, played by the wonderful actor Glenn Flesher. Um, and he was so innovative and so cuckoo, and he spoke of himself in the third person, as evidenced by this little uh, snippet here. Um, and just to give you some context for this slide, uh, Remus is on the phone right now with Steve Buscemi's character, Nucky Thompson, uh, who was a big bootlegger in New Jersey. Um, and they're discussing a business deal, and things are getting a bit heated, and Remus says, Remus finds you petty and resentful. Um, and Steve Buscemi's character, uh, using language that probably is not suitable for this beautiful room, um, says, Remus can go fuck himself. <laughs> 
Um, and he stole every scene he was in. And I wondered if George Remus was a real person. And indeed, George Remus was a real person. And um, he did speak of himself in the third person. And the real George Remus said things like, this is going to be a hell of a Christmas for Remus. So many people want to kill Remus. And my personal favorite, Remus's brain exploded. Um, <laughs> you'll have to read the book to decide if a brain explosion actually occurred. It's actually a subjective thing. Um, but he was the most bizarre and outlandish character I've ever come across in history, and I've come across quite a few. And I'm very excited to tell you about him. Uh, before I get to George Remus, I just want to take a moment to talk about researching George Remus. Um, this uh, is a picture of the overhead scanner at the Yale University Law Library in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I found out that there was a 5,500-page trial transcript um, at Yale University, and as soon as I learned this, I hightailed it up to New Haven, I booked a hotel room for a week, and from beginning of the library's hours to closing, I sat beneath this beautiful, glorious overhead scanner and just Xeroxed every page. Now, this is going to sound strange, but I'm guessing there's some librarians and a few research geeks in the audience here, but this scanner was just like, the most, you know, the, the most beautiful, sexiest thing I've ever seen. You know, usually with the scanner, you have to move the book and rotate and manipulate. This, you just turn the pages, and it was just sort of this gorgeous thing that fed you knowledge from above. Um, and I copied every single page of this trial transcript. Um, and it was fascinating because it had many interesting, very personal details about George Remus that you usually wouldn't find in historical records about people who lived back in the 1920s. Um, one of my favorite tidbits was that George Remus did not wear underwear. Uh, and apparently this is a cause for great alarm in the 1920s, uh, potentially the sign of an unsound mind. Um, but it took me four months to go through this trial transcript and take notes, proper notes from it. And I ended up with an 85,000 word outline, uh, which was almost the length of the book itself. Um, but I, I tell you all of this because some of you might know the ending of, of, of George Remus and, and how this story, this sort of uh, plays out. Um, but I'm trying to keep that. Uh, I tried to write the book as a whodunit, a bit of a thriller. Um, at any point, somebody could kill somebody else. And I'd like to keep the mystery of that alive as long as possible. So just a little FYI for the question and answer part of this evening. So how do you solve a problem like George Remus? His life was much more interesting and dramatic than anything portrayed on Boardwalk Empire. Uh, George Remus emigrated from Germany when he was just a kid, and his family settled in Chicago. And he had a rather difficult upbringing. Um, his father, in George Remus's own words, was a mean and abusive alcoholic. Um, and he had to quit school at age 14 to work in his uncle's pharmacy to help support the family because his father could no longer work. And he really took to this job. Um, Remus applied himself to everything he did, you could say. Um, he even slept in a cot in the back room of the pharmacy. I believe that was partially because he was afraid to go home and face his father's wrath. Um, and he really got into his job. He called himself, quote, a, drug a druggist devil boy. Um, and he studied for pharmacy exams. He eventually bought his uncle's pharmacy and bought another one. He called himself Dr. Remus um, and began peddling all sorts of dubious concoctions. Um, one of them was a, a face cream for women containing mercury. <laughs> I'd like to see the five-year after pictures um, from that. Um, but while he was working his pharmacy job, he also was studying for law. Uh, he wanted to be a lawyer, um, and he eventually did pass the Illinois bar. 
and he made quite a name for himself as a Chicago defense attorney. He quickly rose to prominence, and he became particularly well-known for his courtroom antics. Um, he would cry and leap and tear at his hair and run around the courtroom and jump and attack opposing counsel. He would often end up in a pile of limbs on the floor with lawyers uh, on the other side. Um, and he had many fans who called him the Napoleon of the Chicago bar. And he had just as uh, many detractors who called him, quote, the weeping, crying Remus. Um, and in 1920, he began to notice a new type of client on his docket. It was men charged with violating prohibition laws. Now, he was amazed with the ease with which these people paid their fines. They would come in his office, they would just slap down a few $100 bills, they would pay their fines, and they would be on their way and going back to work. And Remus knew he was much smarter than any of his clients, and he saw a chance, in his words, to clean up. So using his pharmaceutical background and his legal background, he scoured the Volstead Act and looked for a loophole. And he did find a loophole, and which was with a physician's prescription, it was legal to manufacture, buy, sell, and distribute alcohol uh, for quote-unquote medicinal purposes. Now, Remus knew as well as everybody else that nobody was using alcohol for medicinal purposes, um, and it was a provision that he deemed an accustomary flourish of language. Remus had quite a way with words, which I'll get into later on, too. But Remus called this, quote, the greatest comedy, the greatest perversion of justice that I have ever known of any civilized country in the world. Um, so not one for hyperbole at all. Um, so a plan began to take shape in his mind. Now, this is Imogene Holmes. Uh, she was a big part of Remus's plan. She met him when she was working as a dust girl in his office. Uh, with, that's what he called uh, the, cleaning, the cleaning lady back then. She would um, you know, dust up his desk and clean his office after hours. And they began to bond. Um, she was a single mother um, who, with a young uh, daughter uh, named Ruth. She was going through a really bad divorce. Um, and they complained to each other about their mutually miserable marriages. Now, Imogene's husband was a philanderer um, who never had enough money, and Imogene, above all, was interested in having enough money. And Remus, uh, Remus's wife had just recently filed divorce, citing his habit of, quote, coming home early in the morning. <laughs> and you have to love these old divorce records, that that was actually a legitimate thing, coming home early in the morning um, to file on your divorce record. Um, but, but they fell in love, or at least Remus fell in love, um, and they began uh, dating each other. Uh, they left their spouses. They moved in together. Remus paid all of her rent at her apartment in Evanston. Um, and he started confiding in her. Um, he told her about his plans to become the country's preeminent bootlegger. He sought her advice. I think he really trusted her and believed in her and valued her opinion. Um, he coined many nicknames for Imogene, but one of the first ones, and I think the most important one, was his prime minister. He called her the prime minister. Now, Imogene only had one nickname for Remus, and that was Daddy. <laughs> So Imogene and Remus married in June of 1920 and moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where they bought this beautiful mansion in Price Hill, which was the most exclusive neighborhood in Cincinnati. Um, and of course, uh, Imogene brought along her daughter, Ruth. Um, and it was a very strategic location for them. Um, 80% of the country's pre-prohibition bonded whiskey was located within a 300-mile radius of Cincinnati. So it was uh, very strategic for Regis to access distilleries, to get that whiskey, and also to have a hub of transportation to go to other important cities, uh, including Boston. He was here doing business quite a few times. Um, and so they bought this beautiful mansion, and they planned a grand renovations. Um, and Imogene, um, uh, for, for a... Um, 
a, a wedding gift. Remus put the deed to this home in Imogene's name, um, and this was one of many decisions that he would come to regret. Now, I believe that uh, Remus uh, really did love Imogene and really felt uh, true feelings for her, but Imogene, before she got married to Remus, made a confession to a friend and said that she was going to, quote, roll Remus for his role. So, so this is George Connors. Um, this is Remus's right-hand man, his lieutenant. Um, he was a Cincinnati native um, when Remus connected with him soon after he moved to the city. Connors had a lot of connections in politics and real estate. Um, and they had opposite temperaments, which I think is why they really got along. Remus had a very volatile temper. He was known for leaping up and going across the room and trying to strangle people. Um, Connors would always have, was cool, calm, and collected and would sort of calm Remus down and bring him back, bring him back down to earth. And once Connors was in place as his lieutenant, Remus began to implement his plan, which was a four-part plan. Um, number one was to buy distilleries to gain possession of all of that pre-prohibition bonded whiskey. Number two, acquire wholesale drug companies, which would tie into the whole medicinal market. Number three, obtain withdrawal permits that would allow him to remove whiskey from those warehouses and sell it ostensibly on the medicinal market. And number four, this was the true genius of his plan, Remus organized his own transportation company. So all of the men in his transportation company would load the barrels of whiskey onto the trucks, um, you know, going to bring it to the medicinal market, or so they said. Meanwhile, another group of employees would hijack these very same trucks, steal all the liquor on there, and sell it on the illegal market at any price that Remus named. So Remus was basically robbing Remus to pay Remus. Um, and he called this unwieldy octopus of an enterprise the circle. Within a year of launching the circle, George Remus owned 35% of all of the alcohol in the United States, um, which is just an astounding figure. Um, and of course, Remus being Remus, he had to compliment himself on this in, in the third person. And he said, Remus is in the whiskey business, and Remus is the biggest man in the business. Cincinnati is the mecca, American mecca for good liquor, and America has to come to Remus to get it. Now, Remus's fortune at, the, at this time, just within a year of, of opening his uh, operation, was estimated to be between 20 and $40 million, and that's a figure not adjusted for inflation. That's in 1921 money. And the irony of all of this is that George Remus, who built this incredible staggering fortune with alcohol, was a teetotaler who never had a drop to drink in his life. So this is Death Valley. Uh, this is Remus's storage facility for his operations. It was located about 10 miles outside of Cincinnati. And I'll give you the background about this. Um, George Connors found this for Remus after Remus was the victim of a whiskey pirate attack. Now, whiskey pirates were not of the Ahoy matey variety. Um, they were roving bands of thieves who would descend upon warehouses, bound and gag the watchmen, um, cut the telephone wires, and steal every last barrel inside. Um, and Remus was the victim of, of these one night when he was heading from Kentucky back to Cincinnati over the bridge. He was driving, and a uh, car cornered him. Four men jumped out, and they began ransacking his truck and, and trying to fight him for his liquor. Now, Remus was a very athletic person. Um, he was short and stout, but he very uh, much prided himself on his athleticism. In fact, he used to be a competitive swimmer in Cincinnati and boasted about how he broke a record and spent six hours in Frigid Lake, Michigan during one race. Um, and so he began fighting these four whiskey pirates, um, and he managed to beat all of them off, but they did get away with his liquor. And a couple weeks later, the whiskey, head of the whiskey pirates approached Remus and said, you put up such a good fight, you deserve to keep your liquor. 
Now, Remus, being the smart businessman that he was, decided to hire the whiskey pirate and all of his men so they could never rob him again. Um, but as an extra precaution, Remus wanted a facility that would be very well guarded. And so here's Death Valley. Um, they had a uh, weaponry, automatic shotguns, watchmen staged at strategic locations. Um, if you were a visiting rum runner, you had to flick your lights in a certain fashion in order to be allowed in. There was a buzzer announcing everybody. It was very uh, systematic and well organized and very well guarded. And the rum runners who came here were treated as visiting royalty. You know, as soon as they pulled up, someone would leap out and clean their car. They were offered a cot for the night to sleep over, a hot meal. And Remus even organized craps games. Um, and the really special rum runners could even have an extended line of credit that they could pay off the next time they came in. So Remus made it sort of like a, a, a hotel. Um, and Death Valley got its name because of whiskey pirates who tried to trespass and were never heard from again. Um, and Death Valley was very good at keeping out whiskey pirates, but not so much uh, at keeping out federal prohibition agents, as Remus would soon learn. So here's one of my favorite things from uh, my research. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the rum runners who came to Death Valley and picked up Remus's alcohol would, of course, go back and sell it to their own, in their home hometowns, including to uh, local speakeasies, or speaks as they called them back in the day. Um, and here is a 1925 menu from a actual Chicago speakeasy. Um, and the names of some of these drinks are just great. The Pink Lady, the Prince of Rails. Um, there was something popular. Uh, Dirty Dick was a popular drink. Dirty Dick Special, Dirty Dick's Flip. Um, as an antidote, um, there was a Maiden's Prayer. Um, and one of my favorites was the Corpse Reviver, which, as its name suggests, was a hangover cure. The Corpse Reviver, sort of biting the hair of the dog that bit you. Um, and another favorite is that the champagne cocktail was only 75 cents. Um, which was probably the cheapest <laughs> it will ever be. Um, we'll never find another 75 cent champagne cocktail. But um, I just love that this survived and just uh, shows you the, the sort of ingenuity that was going on in speakeasies back in, back in the 1920s. So this is George Remus with his mother, Marie Remus. And aside from Imogene Remus, this was by far the most important woman in Remus's life. As you might surmise from the picture, he was a bit of a mama's boy. And Marie Remus had a very difficult life. Um, when she brought her family over from Germany, she was so beleaguered and bedraggled that when she was questioned by uh, immigration officials, she could not remember the name of four other children who had died, if you can imagine that. Um, she and Remus were always very close. And I like to illustrate their closest with this very creepy story. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, Remus's father was an alcoholic. So as the story goes, one night Marie Remus and her husband, Frank Remus, were out at the neighborhood saloon in Chicago. They got into a fight, and Marie Remus took a bottle and bashed her husband over the head, and he died shortly thereafter from this wound. Now, George Remus worried about his mother, and to protect her and to keep her from speaking indiscriminately to the coroner, he locked his mother in the attic for three days until the inquest was over. Now, can you imagine, Mom, it's for your own good. Just go in the attic. <laughs> you know, I'll come get you in a couple days. Um, but needless to say, probably, Imogene Remus and Marie Remus did not get along. Um, Remus was very generous with his mother, always giving her money, always supporting the family. And Imogene Remus wanted all of the money for herself. So George Remus was also a jealous person, but he was not jealous of money or possessions. He was only jealous about when it came to Imogene. He did not want anyone else coveting his wife, looking at his wife, doing anything with his wife that he personally disapproved of. Um, and uh, this is illustrated by uh, another kind of creepy event. 
Um, once Remus came home in the middle of the night from a business trip, um, and he, uh, you know, arrived home and asked the servant, where is Imogene? And the servant replied that Imogene had gone to Indianapolis with a bunch of friends and a salesman and would not be back until the morning. Now, uh, Remus knew who the salesman was. He didn't like this guy. He didn't trust this guy. Um, he had expressly forbidden Imogene to associate with this person, and he was furious at her insolence. So what does Remus do? He gets in his car. He has his driver speed him out to Indianapolis in the middle of the night. It's heading right to this hotel. This is the Claypool Hotel, which was Indianapolis's finest hotel during the 1920s. It was his favorite hotel in the city and where he and Imogene always stayed when they were there. So he knew she would be there. So he brings with him a loaded cane, which I had to look up what a loaded cane was. Um, it was a gentleman's accessory that was weighted at one end, so it could double as a weapon. So he brings this with him. He goes and finds out what room the salesman is in, in the uh, Claypool Hotel. There was one small mercy. Uh, Imogene was not registered in the same room as this guy. So he takes the elevator. He finds this uh, person's room, knocks on the door. This poor salesman staggers out of bed, opens the door, and finds George Remus, this figure furious, standing with a loaded cane raised above his head, ready to use it. And I'm just going to leave you right there. <laughs> Suspense. Okay, so this is, um, this is a picture of, of one of the rooms in Remus's mansion. By 1921, the renovations on the mansion were complete, and they totaled 75, or excuse me, $750,000, which is about $12 million in today's money for renovations on this mansion. Um, there were 31 rooms very carefully curated and decorated by Imogene and Remus. Um, there were chandeliers the size of cars, imported artwork, um, and Remus's prized possession was an uh, authentic signature of George Washington's worth about $50,000. Um, and here is also his gold piano. Um, and as you might be able to tell from this picture, Remus was not a minimalist. <laughs> um, it was sort of the, the idea of throwing everything in a room and just seeing where you could fit it. Um, but they were very proud of this mansion and, and what it symbolized, that they were finally arriving in society. Uh, here's another favorite room in the mansion. This is their solarium. Um, a little bit more tastefully done here, but, but another, uh, another room. It sort of illustrates the grandeur of this place. Um, and uh, here is an invitation to the 19, uh, legendary 1921 uh, New Year's Eve party, which was really the culmination of Remus and Imogene's attempts to enter society. Now, they both had come from nothing, they both were poor, and they were really desperate to be accepted by old society, by old money, um, by the Tafts, especially the Tafts in Cincinnati. You know, William Howard Taft and his whole family were still there. And to that end, they planned this lavish, extensive New Year's Eve party in December of 1921. And here are the pictures of the invitations that Imogene Remus designed. Um, if you can't see it here, it's uh, the picture of them, little cameos of them, Mr. and Mrs. George Remus. Um, and in preparation, maids addressed these and, and sent them out to robber barons, to journalists, to businessmen, to philanthropists, to politicians, to old money, to anyone that they think would, would be uh, an asset to have at their party. Um, names that were socially um, very prominent. And if all went well, this was going to be their big social debut. Um, dive to health, swim to wealth, and float on happiness is the, is the inscription down here in 1921, 1922. Um, and considering the level of debauchery that they had planned for this party, I find it kind of odd that there's a mother and her baby in the, in the lower right-hand corner, but Imogene designed these, and whatever Imogene wanted, Imogene got. So this is the invitation that went out for the party. 
So here's Emma Jean Remus in her newly decorated boudoir, um, getting ready for this party. And uh, this was also a very important night for Imogene. You know, she was finally somebody. She was Mrs. George Remus, and she wanted to capitalize on this. Uh, and one of her friends gave Imogene this very flattering propose, uh, appraisal of how she appeared on that evening. She was the kind of woman that made you think of Turkish Arams, Oriental dances, and Cleopatra. Her long, frizzed brown hair always seemed to be falling about her dusky, olive-tinted face. Her every glance seemed to caress. Although she was voluptuous to the point of stoutness, there was something feline in her every movement. Um, so Imogene was ready to party here. And here, you know, I love these cartoons. The, uh, newspapers just don't do these anymore. Here is a cartoon depicting exactly what went down at this famous party. Um, so the highlight of the party was this Greco-Roman swimming pool that uh, Remus built for $175,000. That figure at the top, the $100,000, is, is a low, a low ball figure. Um, he christened the pool the Imogene Bass in honor of his wife. The pool was heated, which you can imagine in 1920 was, was an incredible luxury. Um, there were needle bass and something called electric bass, which I had to look up to. Uh, they were an early version of a tanning bed heated by incandescent lights and said to make the user frisky. Um, to me, it just sounds like you're going to get electrocuted, but apparently they were a very popular thing at the time. Um, here are water nymphs uh, doing synchronized swimming routines that Remus had hired. Um, guests were using the diving board as a rostrum to deliver toast to each other. At the stroke of midnight, young Ruth Remus, Imogene's daughter, by the way, who Remus had formerly adopted, appeared in a diaphanous nightgown and said, I'm the spirit of the new year. And Imogene Remus, not to be outdone, put on this very daring one piece and executed a perfect dive right here. And Remus, meanwhile, was handing out party favors. He handed out diamond stick pins and engraved watches for the men, brand new 1922 cars for every woman at the party. Now, mind you, this is many years before Oprah. You know, so you get a card, you get a car. And he tucked a $1,000 bill under everyone's plate. Now, that's the equivalent of if you guys looked under your seat right now and found $14,000 just tucked under your plate. Um, I, there, there isn't any, but um, <laughs> just in case. And in a gesture uh, emblematic of the times and one that would be remembered with all decades later, Remus lit guest cigars with a $100 bill. Now, mind you, all of this was in an era when the average annual salary was $1,200. So just a disgusting, staggering display of wealth um, that was really quite wonderful, though. <laughs> Now here's a picture of Remus's of the engraved watch that he gave out to the men. Um, it says Mr. and Mrs. George Remus, 1921. And it's these parties that Remus threw, particularly that 1921 New Year's Eve party, that are um, said to be the reason why he is considered an inspiration for Jay Gatsby and the great Gatsby. Now there are all these apocryphal stories that F. Scott Fitzgerald and George Remus met when F. Scott Fitzgerald was stationed in Louisville during his military service. Um, and there's no hard evidence that they actually met, but it, without a doubt, Fitzgerald knew who George Remus was when he began writing The Great Gatsby. The entire world knew who George Remus was when he began writing The Great Gatsby. Um, and I think that the parallels between Remus and Jay Gatsby are conspicuous. Um, both men owned a string of pharmacies. Both men lived in an opulent mansion and through these lavish parties. Both were obsessed with an enigmatic woman. And as Fitzgerald writes, um, Gatsby sprang from a platonic conception of himself, um, longing to inhabit a world that didn't, in which he didn't quite belong, a world that never quite welcomed him. And I think that same sense of not belonging, that sense of melancholy, is, is uh, a common theme in both Remus and Gatsby's life. 
So I always have to write a, a book with a very strong woman character. This is my strong woman character. This is Mabel Walker Willembrandt. Um, she was also on Boardwalk Empire, if anybody remembers her, as Esther Randolph. Um, and when President Warren Harding appointed Mabel Willembrandt to be the Assistant Attorney General of the United States in 1921, women in this country had only had the right to vote for nine months. She was 32 years old. She was five years out of law school and had never prosecuted a single case in her career. And suddenly she was in charge of prohibition cases across the country, thousands and thousands of cases, including many cases against George Remus. Now, it's my opinion that her crooked bosses at the Justice Department and in the White House, you know, this is Warren Harding's Ohio gang, the notoriously corrupt administration. I think that they were say, said to themselves, you know, let's, let's put the little woman in charge. She's going to be overwhelmed. She's not going to quite know what she's doing. Um, and we'll be able to continue our cozy relationship with the bootleggers and other criminals that are operating in this country. But of course, what does Willem Brandt do? She takes her oath of office in the fall of 1921 and just begins kicking some butt. Um, and she was the most powerful woman in the country. And of course, people had a lot of problems with that. And, and she was very vocal about the sexism that she experienced. Um, and I just want to read a tiny, a few lines from an um, article that she wrote for H.L. Mencken's The Smart Set, uh, comparing the world's treatment of boys and girls. A boy must do the job well and develop personality. A girl must do the job well and develop personality, plus break down skepticism about her ability, walk the tightrope of sexlessness without loss of her essential charm, keep up an impersonal fight against constant efforts to sidetrack her, and make the hard choice between giving up children and home life in order to advance or having them in the face of increased prejudice. Now, sometimes I'll go and, and read that and somebody will say, oh, nothing's changed. <laughs> Um, but uh, to make matters even more difficult for Will and Brandt, she had a serious hearing problem. She was almost nearly deaf, and she spent an hour each morning styling her hair to conceal the hearing aids that she wore um, because she not, did not want anyone to even be aware of that handicap that she was also dealing with. She was almost inhumanly tough and thick-skinned, qualities that were reinforced by the ice-cold bath she took every morning. Her favorite saying was, life has few petted darlings. She definitely did not consider herself one of them. Um, and I, I like to relate a um, childhood event that I think was a formative event for her. Um, she once bit a pet cat's ear. And to teach her a lesson, her father bit her ear back. So, so soon after Remus's uh, fancy New Year's Eve party, a letter from a concerned Cincinnati, Cincinnati resident lands on her desk, which reads in part, all of Cincinnati is well aware that Remus spends lavishly on riotous living, owns no fewer than 40 automobiles, and dispenses enough liquor from his drug companies to meet the prescriptions of physicians of the whole central United States. So clearly the federal authorities in Cincinnati needed her help. Now Remus had plenty of, uh, excuse me, Willembrand had plenty of problems in, in enforcing prohibition and doing her job. Um, and politics was probably number one. Um, as I mentioned, she was working with corrupt officials in the Justice Department and in the White House. Um, and here's one of them. This is Jess Smith. He was a right-hand man of Will and Brandt's immediate boss, Attorney General Harry Dougherty. Um, and Will and Brandt wasn't quite sure what Jess Smith did. She called him a glorified valet. He held the office um, right up the hallway from her in the Justice Department, and she really didn't know what he did all day. Now, George Remus knew exactly what Jess Smith did because Jess Smith was George Remus's liaison to the White House. Um, and they met often all over the country, um, including in Boston, because Remus wanted two things from Jess Smith. 
Um, number one, he wanted the official, official government withdrawal permits that would allow him to easily get the whiskey out of his distilleries and sell it, quote unquote, on the medicinal market. And number two, he wanted legal protection. Um, Jess Smith promised that Remus would never get arrested. If Remus were arrested, he would not go to trial. If he went to trial, he would not be convicted. If he were convicted, um, he would be acquitted. Um, you know, if he ended up going to jail, Attorney General Doherty would arrange a pardon. You know, bottom line, Remus would not spend time in behind bars. And for these promises, Remus paid very, very handsomely, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably totaling into the million dollars for Jess Smith and these, and these promises. Um, Remus considered Jess Smith his ace in the hole. But this arrangement would not last very long. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, so here's another one of my favorite cartoons illustrating the futility of Will and Brandt's job. Give the little girl a hand. And here she has a broom with she's sweeping back an ocean of alcohol, a literal ocean of alcohol. Um, and part of Will and Brandt's problem was the United States itself. You know, we have two long, craggy borders and 18,000 miles of, of coastline, all of it unnervingly porous. Um, every day, airplane fleets were smuggling liquor in from Mexico to Texas, hidden beneath barrels of hay and transported by truck. Um, from Canada, fleets were arriving every night and going into the uh, uh, Michigan Peninsula, guided by searchlights. You know, these were very organized deliveries. And on a personal level, there were so many inventive ways of smuggling booze. And I'm going to discuss a few of my favorites. A double amputee boasted that he could hide 36 pints in his prosthetics. A soda parlor in Helena, Montana was raided and discovered to have squirt guns with a two-drink capacity. So, so there was basically a room full of children's squirt guns full of alcohol. Liquor, there were liquor-filled torpedoes on Long Island, liquor submarines that raised and lowered out of sight, and seagoing tugs with compartments hiding enough liquor for 30 New Year's Eve parties. And one of my personal favorites, women were even hiding pints inside of rubber breasts. So here's a good one. On first glance, um, this woman is reading, carrying a book called The Four Swallows by J.B. Korn, which is a very not subtle reference to John Barleycorn. Um, but of course, you flip open the top and it's actually a, actually a flask. Um, the four vials are there, hence the four swallows, um, the title of the book, uh, where you could fit uh, four vials of your favorite kind of alcohol, um, very handily um, concealed in this thing that looked like a book. Um, this invention was the brilliant work of a, a Brooklyn-based man named John Nutry, who before Prohibition made a name for himself by designing um, little books that functioned as banks, little personal banks, a coin bank. Um, and as soon as Prohibition became the law of the land, Nutri made a fortune by patenting these in February of 1921. They were a very popular way to carry your booze around. So here's another one. At first glance, this woman is enjoying her coffee in a cafe. Uh, but what is she doing with her cane? Um, she is spiking her coffee with a bunch of liquor hidden in that cane. Um, <laughs> These were very popular contraptions also, um, handily available. Uh, you could you know, basically carry a, your cane full of liquor anywhere and spike any of your drinks. Clearly, she is very pleased with herself for getting away with this. So I like to call this one, my what a big flask you have. Um, but this was actually called a bootlegger's life preserver. And, uh, and it just goes to show you women were very well aware um, that prohibition agents at this time were either too polite uh, to search them or forbidden altogether. There were many states where it was actually illegal to search women's um, body to discover if they had any booze on them or not. So women were aware of this, took full advantage of it. You know, they're hiding booze in their rubber breasts, in their bloomers, and they're underneath their big fur coats and their big life preserver 
turnovers, um, and, and it was something that they, they, they really knew how to work the system around. So these are called cow shoes. Um, these did not actually carry liquor, but they were indispensable to bootleggers who brewed moonshine in forests or meadows. So the heels were carved from a wooden block and made to resemble hooves, and they were fastened by a little wire track and affixed to the bottom of the shoe. And these literally covered the tracks of a, a moonshiner who was being pursued on foot by a prohibition agent. So he'd be running through a forest and just to look down and see a bunch of ho hoops, like, you know, horse tracks. Um, but it was really the bootleggers getting away in these shoes. Um, really quite a brilliant invention. I keep checking eBay. I hope they come back in style. I would really, I'd really like a pair myself. Um, here's a picture of an agent uh, wearing, modeling these boots. In 1924, he managed to catch one of the moonshiners who was wearing these. Um, they were particularly popular down south. Um, which brings me to another of, of Willembrandt's problems. She had a problem finding good, honest prohibition agents. You know, they, they only began with an average salary about, of about twelve dollars to $1,300 a year, which was barely a living wage in some parts of the country. And all of these agents knew they could make much more money taking bribes from George Remus and other bootleggers. Um, also, there were no qualifications required to become a prohibition agent. Uh, recruitment was often done in courthouses. So you would find like a traffic cop or a, a courtroom gadfly or a bailiff and be like, do you want to be a prohibition agent? And they could just sign on. You could even have a criminal record and become a prohibition agent. Um, I read one story where a man was doing uh, time in an upstate New York prison for armed robbery and murder when he got his badge as a prohibition agent. So there were really no qualifications or any standards at all. And Willembrandt wrote about her frustration on this matter. And she said, the dominant reality is that the whole problem is one of getting the right men in places of power and enforcement, men of creative thought, of courage, and those not slaves to political ambition. And by men, I also mean women, lots of them. So this is prohibition agent Franklin Dodge. This is Willembrandt's best hope um, as a, a, for her, an honest prohibition agent. She called him her ace of detectives. Um, he was very pedigreed. He came from a very important Michigan family. His father was a prominent lawyer there and had been um, serving in the Michigan legislature for decades. Um, and and uh, they were a very important family there. His father got him his first government job, and he was the kind of guy that just kept failing upwards. Um, Willembrandt saw something in him, in Franklin Dodge. I think it was because he was willing to use unorthodox means to investigate bootleggers. He was unafraid of going undercover and, and trying to get um, information in surreptitious ways and report it back to Willembrandt. He always proved very reliable with his information. Um, and so she, she considers him her best hope to go after George Remus. Now she sends Franklin Dodge to go investigate George Remus's empire, and despite all of the promises that Jess Smith made to Remus, Franklin Dodge manages to get George Remus put in jail. Now this is not the last time that the bootlegger would meet Franklin Dodge. They met again when Remus was serving time at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, and Dodge was sent down there to investigate prison corruption among the officials. So while he was there, Remus had begun hearing, uh, began hearing rumors about Franklin Dodge. He heard that Agent Dodge was, was amenable to bribes. He would be willing to consider a quid pro quo. And Remus figured, well, if I pay Dodge some money, and maybe I give him some information about other bootleggers that he could bring on to his higher-ups, make him look good, um, he might be willing to do me a favor. He might help me get out of prison earlier or commute my sentence, just help me get out of jail. So Remus has this grand idea that he's going to make an arrangement with Dodge, and the next time Imogene comes to visit her husband in prison, George Remus tells her to begin cultivating Franklin Dodge. 
Now, Imogene begins cultivating Franklin Dodge, but not quite in the way that Remus hopes. So Imogene Remus, when her husband is in prison, is 39 years old. And, you know, there was a big scare about middle-aged flappers. They were terrifying creatures. Um, it, as you can tell by these headlines, um, the New York Times described them thusly. Not life, but movement is what she seeks. It is she who does over the old house or builds a new one where her husband is deposited while she goes out in search of culture. Now, Franklin Dodge became Imogene's culture. Um, and to me, this was an interesting theme of the book. You know, women were subverting societal expectations and mores. And, and what were the consequences of this? Um, I think we can all agree that the 1920s were a very singularly dynamic and rich time in American history. I don't think George Remus or this story could have happened or flourished at any other time in American history. You know, we had just emerged from World War II, and the war swept away a lot of gender norms because women had left home in large numbers and flooded the workplace. And after the war, we found ourselves in this very interesting in-between period. Um, we were much more hedonistic because we realized life could be so short, but it was before the Great Depression came and put a damper on everything. And in terms of women's advancement, you know, there were many people who were unhappy and maybe even terrified that their wives and their sisters and their mothers and their aunts and their daughters suddenly had the right to vote. So there was public backlash against women who dared to defy social conventions, and they were publicly denounced and vilified. And people especially had a hard time with middle-aged women because they should know better. Um, and one newspaper admonished middle-aged flappers this way. Everyone knows that there is a certain type of American woman of a certain age who spends her life trying to be like the girls. The woman who finds herself earnestly mimicking the voice, mannerisms, and dress of the poor little flapper girls of any age is a greater menace than the 16-year-old kind. So very dangerous indeed. As for the 16-year-old kind, they developed their own magazine. It was called Flapper Magazine. Their tagline was, not for old fogies. And they had a wonderful definition of flapper that I really think should make a comeback. A flapper, according to them, was somebody who had a jitney body and a limousine mind. So I love that. Um, and they developed their own slang. And I'll t tell you a few of my favorites here because the print is kind of small. Um, a biscuit was a pettable flapper. A boob tickler was a girl who entertains father's out-of-town customers. And sweetie, and I love this passive aggressiveness, sweetie meant anybody a flapper hates. So, uh, the male students of Syracuse University and other colleges were worried that flappers' brazen behavior would make them appear more effeminate. So across the country, men began anti-flapper clubs. They were organizing clubs to protest, quote, smoking among women, women who wear flopping galoshes, and the intrusion of women into realms heretofore restricted to men. So again, very dangerous stuff. Um, here is one last cartoon. Flappers were even portrayed as sexual predators. My favorite is the middle one here. Unsuspecting boys were first forced to endure such unseemly exercises as cheek dancing. <laughs> oh no. So people might recognize this character here. This is J. Edgar Hoover, very young J. Edgar Hoover. Um, in 1924, when J. Edgar Hoover took over the Bureau of Investigation and became the director of the Bureau of Investigation, of course, was a precursor to the FBI. He was only 29 years old, and he was promoted at the assistance of Mabel Walker Willenbrand. J. Edgar Hoover would not have been promoted without Willenbrand's recommendation and strong words of praise. Um, in the beginning of his career, he handled coded transpo um, 
uh, correspondence about bootleggers. And in terms of what was a prosecutable prosecutable offense, he had to answer to Mabel Willenbrandt. So I love the idea of J. Edgar Hoover having to answer to Willenbrandt um, about, about what cases to pursue. And he got promoted to director but despite a bit of a shady history at the Bureau. I'm sure many of you know that he was involved in the, uh, the Palmer raids, you know, the um, illegal uh, arresting and detention of suspected anarchists and communists, a very shady part of history. Um, but there was one positive about J. Edgar Hoover at this time. He was determined to have a force of honest prohibition agents. He didn't want anybody who was taking bribes, anybody who was shady. He wanted to rid the force of all corrupt influences. And he was very serious about that. So he had begun hearing rumors about Agent Dodge, Franklin Dodge, and what he might be up to with Imogene Ramis, the famous bootlegger's wife. And he actually sends one of his agents to spy on Agent Dodge. So it's a bit of a spy versus spy thing going on here. And what does Hoover's agent discover? He finds out that Franklin Dodge and Imogene Remus are stealing Remus's whiskey certificates and endeavoring to sell them. They are taking prized possessions from Remus's mansion. And at one point, Hoover's agent actually catches Dodge literally with his pants down, um, which I have to say was such a fun scene to write. You know, the historical record doesn't often describe an agent having his pants down. Um, just to put things into perspective, in this book, J. Edgar Hoover is one of the good guys. So here's poor George Remus in his cell at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, not wearing an orange jumpsuit or anything like that. He's in his fine three-piece silk suit. No underwear, of course. He never wore underwear. Um, and don't let his morose expression fool you. George Remus occupied a suite of rooms at the Atlanta Penitentiary in a, in a section of the jail called Millionaire's Row. He was able to hire a maid. He was able to hire a personal cook. Every night he had dinner on a long mahogany table laid with fresh linens and beautiful fresh flowers. Imogene was permitted to come to his cell and scrub it on her hands and knees, which she did. She was actually called the angel of the pen. But despite all of these freedoms and luxuries, George Remus was not happy in prison. Um, he, I think, you know, George Remus was a control freak. And of course, being in pr prison, you lose control. Um, he was especially at this point worried about losing control of his marriage. Uh, he also was hearing rumors about what his wife was up to with Prohibition Agent Dodge, and he would, um, you know, you know, ask her about it, and she would just reassure him everything was okay, and they would get into fights about it. And every time she would leave, he would send these letters that got increasingly unhinged. The more he heard about Dodge and Imogene, the more unhinged Remus became. And just because, I, as I said earlier, Remus had such a way with words, I want to read a brief excerpt of my favorite letters that he wrote to Imogene Remus while he was in prison. To the only true and sweetest little girl in the whole dear world, to the apple of my eye, not one but both, how glorious it feels to know that my sweetheart is cheery again. Little one, you do not know what it means to have you away from me for so long. The minutes turn into days, the days into months, and the months into year. I crave you. I would devour you. I care only for you, a human madness. All other matters are infinitesimal against you, and only you. Therefore, you see how I burst into a human cloud, burst with a vitriolic tongue interspersed. My only wife, how is it that you are a monkey? You are a centipede. You are a gem. You are a jewel. You are a combination of all the aforesaid in one. If I but had you this very moment, I would demonstrate all of the foregoing with a real vigor and vim unexcelled. How about it? 
Um, I don't know where centipede came from. I think it might be the oddest term of endearment I've ever heard anyone use, but it was a thing with them. Um, meanwhile, anytime that um, Remus asked Imogene, how was it going? Are you cultivating Franklin Dodge? Are you, is he any closer to getting me out of prison? Imogene would reassure him by saying, don't worry, daddy, Mr. Dodge is our friend. So this is Harry Truesdale. Um, he is the man that Imogene Remus and Franklin Dodge hire to kill George Remus. Now, at one point, Truesdale, who was a hardened criminal, mind you, and a professional hitman, was so terrified of both Imogene and George Remus that he didn't know which one was going to kill each other, and he thought they might turn around and kill him. Um, just to illustrate how crazy things get into this story, um, at one point, he just, he just doesn't know what to do. This professional hitman is scared for his life. Um, I'll leave that there. So here's my final slide. This is George Remus's grave. He is buried in Riverside Cemetery in Falmouth, Kentucky. As you can see from here, um, there were angels and the wings are torn off. Um, and the story goes that somebody wrote a letter saying that George Remus, having lived the life that he lived, did not deserve to have uh, angels on his tombstones and, and wings on these angels. And the very next day, sure enough, someone took a hammer and, and just demolished the wings on these angels so that they were no longer angels, just figures without wings. Um, and so that's how it appears today, his tombstone. And um, I like to finish by saying that, you know, people who do what I do, who write narrative nonfiction, we often lament that we are beholden to the historical record. We are not allowed to make up any dialogue or any events. Everything has to come from a printed document from history. Um, but I love saying, and this is very true, um, the ghost of Eden Park represents the very first time when the dead people did exactly what I wanted them to do. <laughs> so... <laughs> If anybody has any questions or stories to share about their own bootlegging families, I would love to, I'd love to talk with you all about that now. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you.